Hey, I too want to add a huge happy Mother's Day. Thinking of all of you moms at our South Naperville campus, all of the Bolingbrook moms and grandmas, everybody at Hobson and Wheaton. Moms, you are so appreciated. I just have this keen awareness that moms have devoted their lives sacrificially to their kids in ways we'll never know. And you don't get enough thanks or recognition. And so I pray that you would be blessed this day and know that there are some of us who are exceedingly grateful for all that you do and have done. And it works so well with this series on fearless. You know, we're talking about overcoming our fear. And sure enough, I, I find at least that when it comes to being terrified raising kids, yeah, that'll freak you out. And so our message today is facing the fear in parenting, and it's just going to work so well with Mother's Day. Although I would add, some of you are like, oh man, I'm going to sleep. No, men stay awake. This has application for everybody, old and young, male or female. If you have a heart to receive the challenge and the encouragement, it's there for the taking in a great passage. Been uh, reflecting because I came across a, 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 an advertisement selling an old van that reminds me so much of the one I grew up in. Take a look at this. This is an old Chevy van, uh, StarCraft customization on the inside. Remember the swivel seats and the wood trim on the inside and carpeting up the walls? In the back, there was this bench seat that would lay back as a bed. Now, we used it as a wrestling mat. Uh, my my, I'm the oldest of three boys, and we loved our van because we just went crazy. And my poor mom, oh my, I can remember, you know, uh, she would say, stop it! You know, we would be throwing each other against the walls of the van. The whole van would be swaying back and forth on the road, and we would ignore, you know, her pleas that we would sit still. You know, it just couldn't be done. And, and not only the swaying, uh, I have a... My youngest brother, Mark, I used to like pinning him down on that wrestling mat, putting my elbow into his sternum and just kind of rolling it around a little. And he would squeal like a little girl. I can hear it still. And my mom would say, stop, stop. Uh, One day we pushed her too far. Uh, My dad was driving and just trying to ignore, you know, this disaster. And my mom had told us 10 times to cut it out, and we just kept fighting and throwing. And all of a sudden, she got up and started coming back, and I saw she had crazy in her eye. You know, we were like, who is that woman? What happened to our mom? And uh, she had neck veins bulging out, and she came back. And I remember her, she she had her hands here, and she wasn't sure what to do with them. She wanted to do something. And she reached out, and she grabbed me by the earlobe. You know, I never knew what earlobes were for. I found out that day, you know. They're like a little tab for moms to grab. And she grabbed Dave with the other one. And, you know, there's nothing you can do. She just turned our heads and, look at me. We're looking at you. And she's like, if you don't stop. I mean, the most classy, insane woman I know just, and it reminds me of how challenging it is to be a mom and how difficult we kids at times make it for moms. This uh, memory also reminds me that some things are the same, some things have changed. I mean, the challenge of motherhood is the same, but the the challenges associated with motherhood are, are different. For example, wrestling in the back of the car doesn't happen anymore, does it? 
Uh, they don't have benches that lay out into beds, and they, they have seatbelts that kids must, you know, the law. Back then, there was no seatbelt law. In fact, I have a theory that the seatbelt law is not really about the safety of children, but the <laughs> sanity of parents, you know what I mean? I mean, parents are like, I'm sorry, child, but it's illegal. The law requires me to tie you down. (laughs) And so now kids are are tied down and they're on their devices. Technology is kind of at the heart. Thank you very much. Technology is at the heart of uh, what's changed. I I think of technology when it applies to... um, Games. I mean, kids are just addicted to these games. And as a result, the, the cry of moms these days are, put down that screen, right? In the old days, moms would go to the door and cry outside and say, kids, come inside. It's time for dinner. And now it's, they're inside. Put down your screen. It's time for dinner. Things have changed. Not only the addictive nature of games, but I think of the access to trash and filth. You know, in the old day, if if a kid wanted to see something, they would, you know, a friend would try to steal their dad's dirty magazine. Well, these days, with a click of a button, a world of evil is accessible to our children. And it's just, it's terrifying, I find it. And then I even think of the social media dynamic. You know, social tension and pressure has always been hard on kids. But in the old days, it was in the hallways of school during the five-minute passing period that all the drama took place. Well, now the, hall, the drama of the hallway has entered our homes. And when the kid is in their bedroom, which used to be an escape from all that drama, no, it's 24-7. The social media has made all of that drama an ongoing dynamic. It's scary to raise kids in this world. At least it is for me. I look at the post-Christian culture that we're dealing in. So often it seems that the values I'm trying to instill in my children, the culture is saying the exact opposite and pushing them in a different direction. And so I think it's only natural to be fearful when it comes to this calling of parenthood. And yet, as we turn to the Bible, let me show you a passage. Uh, This is not our main text. We'll get to our text. This is a New Testament summary of our Old Testament narrative we're about to read. Hebrews 11, verse 23, a simple verse in the New Testament that says this. They were not afraid of the king's edict. And at first glance, you may not see how that's a parenting statement, but it is. The they are parents. It's the parents of Moses. We don't know much, actually, at all about dad, but we know a lot about mom. Her name was Jochebed. And Jochebed was courageous. She was not afraid of the king's edict. What did the king's edict have to do with parenting? The king was Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was the leader of this massive country of Egypt, and they, Pharaoh had a problem. The the Jewish people had been guests in Egypt for a long time, but then eventually they became slaves in Egypt, but now they were growing, the Jews were in population so immensely that the Pharaoh felt threatened, like they're going to take over. And so the Pharaoh, out of paranoia, set an edict, a law, that all Jewish babies who are born and are a male must be killed drowned in the Nile River. Horrific. 
I would call that a culture that's striving to suppress the flourishing of children, would you? And yet in that much worse environment, Jacobed was not afraid. And I just want to say, teach me, Mom. How did you do that? And so let's do that. Let's go back to Exodus 2, where we see the story of this courageous mom. Actually, three courageous moms. And let's learn from them. Exodus 2, verse 1. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth. Can you imagine the tension at the moment of birth? You know, they didn't have ultrasounds. They didn't know if it was a boy or girl. Girls live, boys die. She gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child... Every mom thinks the kids are fine. This is an extra. Is it just me or is this the most beautiful baby in the whole world? Yeah. When she saw how perfect this child was, she hid him for three months, refusing to cooperate with the law and let her boy die. She's desperately trying to hide, which would have been so hard because the Jews were slaves living in a tent camp with guards walking up and down between the tents, listening for crying babies. Oh, my. She knew this wasn't going to last. And sure enough, in verse 3, but when she could hide him no longer, apparently his cries, his lungs were growing, his cries getting louder, she realized this isn't going to work. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it, And put it, the basket, among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. Um, The basket, she coated it to make it float. You know this story. You've seen it maybe when you were a kid in Sunday school. Uh, Put Moses in this basket. I do have to clarify something, though. I always saw in my little uh, take-home from Sunday school, Moses was like floating down the river, you know, like mom had said, bon voyage, child, I hope it all works out well for you. It was much more intentional and strategic than that. The passage says she put the basket among the reeds along the bank of the river. She chose the spot. When you put a basket, you know, reeds are very stiff grass plants. You would, it would stay there. This was not floating down the river. She strategically, intentionally placed the basket in a very uh, strategic place. And we'll see in a moment why that place was so strategic. Her name is Jacobed. She places the basket among the reeds. Now let me introduce Miriam. Verse 4. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. The sister of Moses, is Miriam. Uh, We find her name later. She's probably 12 years old. That's what scholars say. She's old enough to have a mature conversation, as we're going to see. She engages conversationally with adults in a very strategic and effective manner. And yet she's not too old because adults were required, adult Hebrews were required to be slaves and work in the fields. And so Miriam was chosen because she was still a kid who could play along the river and not be suspicious. And uh, Miriam is just an incredible woman. In fact, she's a hero in this account. But later on, she becomes a leader in Israel, a prophetess, who ministered to this growing nation in in powerful ways. I love Miriam. Verse 5, 
Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. And her attendants were walking along the riverbank. And she, Pharaoh's daughter, saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. That's why Jacob had placed the basket where she did. She knew that the palace is right here by the river. She knew that Pharaoh's daughter comes down on a daily basis to bathe in this very spot. And so the whole plan was to place Moses right where Pharaoh's daughter comes so Pharaoh's daughter would find Moses. Verse 6, she, that's Pharaoh's daughter, opened the basket and saw the baby and he was crying and she felt sorry for him. Her heart was moved with compassion for this adorable little child. That was the plan. She feels compassion, and she says, this is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Who is she talking to? She's talking to the other women. As we're about to see, there's a gathering, and I've seen this before. You know, the the baby is there, and when there's a baby, it's like a magnet to, to ladies, Old ladies, uh, teenage girls, there's, you've seen it, the dynamic of an adorable baby just draws in the women. And, and Pharaoh's daughter is like, oh, it's a Hebrew baby. And the women are all going, oh. And now she's got a dilemma. Because the law of her dad says she should take the child out and drown it in the river right now. But her heart is being stirred with compassion and affection for this child. What will she do? Will she, she's probably realizing, you know, a Hebrew mom put this baby here, you know, for a reason. Well, in fact, look at, look at what it says next. Uh, it's verse 7, then his sister, that's Moses' sister, Miriam. His sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? You got to remember that bottles were not an option at this time. Nursing was the only option. And so uh, in an adoptive situation, they needed to find a lactating mom who could be a wet nurse in this capacity. So imagine the moment, okay? Uh, uh, So Pharaoh's daughter is staring into this basket at this beautiful child. The women are gathering. Miriam used to be hiding in the weeds. She's come up. She's one of them who's now looking at the baby. And as Pharaoh's daughter says, it's a Hebrew baby boy, Miriam speaks up. I happen to know a Hebrew woman who is ready to nurse at this very moment. Would you like me to go get her for you? Now, some scholars, and maybe you always thought that Pharaoh's daughter just was clueless and didn't understand what was going on here. I think she knew exactly what was going on. I think when she saw that baby, she's like, ah, somebody wants me to rescue their child. And when this Hebrew teenage girl comes up and says, I happen to know a Hebrew woman who's lactating right now, and I think she knew that's the mother. I see what's going on. I'm being asked to participate in a conspiracy to save the life of this child. And she had a decision to make. Was she going to join this operation? She said yes. Yes, go get her, she answered. She was in. And so it began. Let me read to you the next verse, verse 8 and 9. 
So the girl, Miriam, ran and she went and got the baby's mother, that's Jochebed, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me. He's my child. I've adopted him now. And so you're not breaking any law by having my child. Uh, nurse him for me. I'll even pay you to make this official. Isn't that amazing? I just love this moment. This, to me, is one of the glorious dramas of the Bible. There are three women. In fact, let me highlight them for you. There's the girl, Miriam. There's baby's mother, Jochebed. And there's Pharaoh's daughter all around the basket, all agreeing. Put your hand in. Let's say we're all in on this plan to help this precious baby survive. No, let's help the baby thrive. And together... They did just that. Let me read to you the next verse, verse 9. So the woman, that's Jochebed, took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, probably two or three, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he then became her son. And you should know uh, he was raised in the palace among the greats and mighty of the country. He was taught in the finest schools in all the world, received an education where he learned leadership and polity and commanding of armies, and he was the perfect person to be the go-between between the Hebrew people and the Egyptian government and to lead them out of Egypt and lead them into the establishment of a nation called Israel. Three uh, Three moms, if you will, working together to execute God's brilliant plan. When I say three moms, you're like, I don't count three. Let me put them up here. There, there's the birth mom, Jacobed. You all understand her role. I'm going to call Miriam a second mom. You ever heard that, you know, when there's an older sister in the family? Like my uncle will tell you, I had two moms. My mother and my older sister, who happened to be my mom. Uh, my mom was 12 years old when my uncle was born. Uh, he was a surprise. Uh, my grandmother didn't expect him to come around. And uh, I think my grandmother was kind of worn out of parenting at that point because when my mother got all excited about a little baby, my grandmother's like, oh, you like caring for little babies, do you? My grandmother said, we could have your little brother sleep in your room. <laughs> and my mom was like, yeah. And so my uncle uh, grew up in my mom's room where when he was crying in the night, it was my mother who would get up and feed him a bottle. It was my mom who would change his diaper in the middle of the night. My grandmother would, you know, sleep. And she, she understood second moms real well. I, I include this category because maybe you're a second mom of sorts, meaning the, the kid has a mom, but God has called you to be an influence in a child's life. Maybe you're an older sibling. I love when older siblings catch a vision that God can use them to. Or, or maybe you're a grandmother, a great-grandmother, or a neighbor. Friends, I have found that sometimes some of the greatest impact is not through the primary mom, but through the second mom. I, I just got together with a guy uh, this week who told me, he's like, yeah, my mom, I love her, but she doesn't love Jesus. It was my aunt who told me about life with God through Christ. He said, it was my aunt who introduced me to our church. 
It was, he said, my aunt who introduced me to my wife. He says, I owe everything to my aunt, my second mom. And friends, so don't miss that vision. Whom has God called you? What young people has God called you to impact? It's, it's a beautiful role. Maybe stepdad, stepmom, another expression of that role. Okay, and then adoptive mom. You'll forgive me for just preaching a bit here. I am so passionate about, uh, Jen and I have adopted two kids, and so many people in our church are adoptive parents or foster parents, or we have a ministry called Safe Families where Parents, different from foster in that the parents actually are giving permission for you to care for their child for a season of a crisis. And when I see all of this adoptive parent stuff going on, it just reflects the heart of God so profoundly. And I say, keep it up, keep it up. So three moms standing around a basket, agreeing to work together to help this kid thrive. Now let's take a closer look at the attributes of these three moms that help them face the fear of of parenting and help them get over it. So what do you have with the birth mom? We have wisdom and faith. Do you see the wisdom in Jacobed coming up with the plan that she came up with? I mean, this woman had three months where she's trying to hide Moses. She's realizing this isn't going to work. I got to come up with a plan. I got to come up with a plan. God, give me wisdom. How do I parent in this moment in a way when it seems that everything's going against this child? How do I win in this challenging situation? She came up with the craziest plan. I mean, think about it. Rather than running away from Pharaoh, the one who wants to kill your kid, she says, let's go at him. Let's charge into the heart of the evil Let's get our kid into the palace. I mean, who would have thought that? But she was right. You know, her instinct told her that this daughter of Pharaoh comes to this spot every day. She won't carry out her dad's command. And she, Pharaoh's daughter, has the power to ensure this child's safety. And not only ensure his safety, she has the resources to give him the best upbringing. And she said, let's do it. In fact, I even see an irony here. I can see her saying, yeah, you know, Pharaoh says the law is that the baby has to be cast into the Nile River. We'll cast him into the Nile River in a basket in front of Pharaoh's house, you know. And Brilliant. Moms, one of the great things you do is come up with wise strategies. How are we going to raise kids in today's world? Now, I would also point to faith. You know, when... Jacobed had a great plan. She was the one who placed him among the reeds. But there was that moment when she had to walk away and say, all right, God, now it's a trust thing. I'm trusting you. I'll sleep tonight only because I'm trusting you to take my best effort to execute my plan and bless it. And that's what mom's got to do. You know, with the help of books and wise counsel and much prayer, they got to come up with a plan. How are we going to raise these crazy kids? And then they got to have faith and say, Lord, I can't make it happen. I got to trust you to be involved. And I'll sleep tonight because I trust you. Uh, I look at my wife, and she just inspires me in this regard. Uh, Jen is wrestling in prayer about wisdom. How do I raise these kids all the time? I bet you if, if you looked at her prayer journal, it would be half wisdom request and half faith request. Uh, She says, Lord, 
I don't want to be too strict, but I want to be strict enough. And, and I want to discipline them, and I don't want to have too many rules. God, guide me in this delicate balance. Lord, how do I teach these kids in a way that they will receive instruction and not just roll their eyes and push it away? My wife is constantly fine-tuning her strategy as God guides her, and she just inspires me. The other half of her prayer journal is, God, give me peace, trusting you to work in the lives of these kids. And she is, for me, just a display of wisdom and faith. And it's, it's what moms do, and it's beautiful. How about the second mom? What did the second mom bring to the table? Obedience and vision. Miriam obeyed. You know, her, this plan was her mom's plan. And I can imagine mom saying, listen, Miriam, I need you. If I go and stay around the river and, and just hang out there, I'm going to be called out. Because, again, adults need to be in the fields working. We're slaves, you know. But you, a kid, you can get away with just hanging out. And so, Miriam... I need you. It's, you're the pivotal person in this rescue plan. You're the one who's going to have to step up and speak to the princess with this idea of you going and getting a, a wet nurse. Miriam, can you do it? And Miriam said, okay, mom, if you're asking me to, I will obey. So Miriam's role was out of obedience. And mom, I would argue your role is out of obedience, not to your earthly mother, but your heavenly father, who's saying, I'm calling you to raise these kids. And some days, it's just pure obedience, where you say, all right, Lord, I will do it, and I'll do it with all my heart, because you asked. And when motherhood is obedience, I'll tell you one of the ways that makes it so beautiful, it becomes worship to God. When we do it with all of our heart, because we know God asked us to, we are worshiping him. And even when our obedience doesn't have the results in our kids that we wanted, it's still worship. Do you realize that? You, you moms who are faithfully loving your wayward children who aren't walking with Christ, and it, it just breaks your heart. Know this, though. Your faithful obedience in motherhood is bringing a smile to God's face. Hear heavenly applause because your obedience is worship even when it's not as fruitful as you'd like it to be. So obedience and vision. You know, again, this is, she had the vision for her own life, Miriam did, that I, though a kid, can be used to help my brother. That's so important. Because particularly for second moms, you've got to have a vision that even though it's not your child, per se, you can be used by God in great ways in their lives. Maybe, I love when, when young people you know, come up to me and talk with me, and I can tell they're not afraid to engage in a conversation that's mature and respectful. And, and I love when young people engage with their peers or those who are younger, seeking to be an influence in their lives. Uh, young people have a vision that God can use you too. Let me speak to the older people. Sometimes you feel, I'm too old to be able to relate or connect with young people. Don't go there. God can use all of us. So you've got to believe and have the vision that you too can be used as a second mom to bring influence and encouragement and a role model to these younger people. All right. So second mom brought obedience and vision. What about adoptive mom? She brought love and devotion. 
uh, you saw the love the minute she gazed into the basket, right? In that moment, she was like, oh my. And there was this tension, this battle between do I obey dad and his law and drown the kid or do I obey my heart and love one out? This adoptive mother was filled with love. And I'm, I would argue that you want to see in an earthly setting the most intense, beautiful affection on planet Earth. It's the love of a mom. Look out. I think it reflects the very love of Jesus Christ. When we see Jesus willing to give his life for our sake, that sacrificial love is seen in a mom every day as she lives to die for her child. Oh, the power of the love of a mom. But this adoptive mom, it's not only love, it's also devotion. Remember the passage says that when the child was weaned, this princess took Moses into her house as her own son. That phrase, as her own son, conveys Moses did not have second-class status as a visitor in the palace. That, that's the beauty of adoption, is that when done right, uh, you as an adopted parent, you're like, I am as devoted to you, though you're not my flesh and blood, I am as devoted to you as my flesh and blood. I am committed. You are full status, my child. And she did. She gave her heart. She could have chosen the easy path of, you know, uh, just the good life of the palace. But she chose the hard path of devoting her life to this boy, giving him the best life possible, the best education possible. And her devotion and her love had a beautiful effect on this Moses. And I've seen the power of love and devotion from a mom. Interestingly, I've seen it in my mother in kind of the adoptive sense. When my mom had finished uh, when she became an empty nester, when all of her boys were done, and she kind of took a sigh of, phew, I made it. Wouldn't you know, right then, uh, one of her nieces, my cousin, became an orphan. Uh, my, my cousin lost both of her parents. They both died when she was still a, in her young teens. And my mom and dad prayed about that and felt God leading them to take her in. And uh, she, they, they became the... Uh, legal guardians of my my cousin. I remember talking with my brothers, going, oh, she doesn't know what she's got it coming. And my, my cousin at that time was a bit of a, a little bit of a wild child, living a rather sinful, rebellious lifestyle. And my brothers and I were like, when mom gets a hold of her, and we weren't talking about firm discipline as much as we were about love and devotion. My mom had always wanted a daughter, and finally she had got one. And all of this pent-up mother-to-daughter love just came crashing down on my cousin. She was never loved like she was in that moment. And the devotion, my mom felt a renewed calling to this parenting role and devoted herself singularly to this girl. And my cousin, under the power of love and devotion from mom, she turned a corner, and she is now thriving in her relationship with Christ and just doing fantastic. She's now a mother of five kids herself. She's adopted one. Uh, it's a beautiful story. So moms, adoptive moms, birth moms, second moms, I pray 
that you would have wisdom given to you from God. It won't be a perfect plan, but that you would come up with the best plan on how to raise this child in all these complicated matters in this difficult environment. And I pray that you would have faith and trust the Lord, that you'd let go of the basket, lay your head on the pillow at night and sleep well, knowing you're not alone, he's with you. I pray that you would have the mindset of obedience, that God has called you to this task and you will worship him by obeying whether it's successful or not. And I pray that you, all of us, second moms, will have the the vision to believe that, yes, us, God can use us too to impact the lives of younger people. And I pray that you will have love born straight out of the heart of God expressed through you. And I pray you will have fiery devotion, commitment to the well-being of that child. And may moms thrive and may children be blessed as Moses was. You know, I want to close by using this basket as an analogy. Uh, This particular basket belongs to my wife. She uses it for laundry. She puts dirty laundry in this. And my wife hates laundry. Uh, Maybe you love it. Maybe you find great joy in that task. Sometimes tasks associated with the care of children are a little mundane and laborious, inglorious. And, And interesting, in the ancient world, baskets were used for laundry and for cooking grains and beans and rice and uh so this basket, in one sense, symbolizes the tasks involved with being a mom, caring for others, that can look or feel insignificant. And yet this basket also reminds us that three moms gathered around Moses were involved with executing God's incredible deliverance plan. As these moms gathered around this basket, put their hands in the middle and said, all right, we're all in, right? Let's do this thing. They were a part of God's strategy to deliver two million Jews from slavery in Egypt. They were a part of launching God's plan to turn this people group into a nation that would bear another deliverer, Jesus, who would be savior to the world should they receive his great gift. And so uh, this basket reminds us that sometimes the most mundane mother responsibilities are actually glorious if you can see it. This basket reminds us that God is a planner. He's always executing this eternal plan. And all of God's huge plans begin with the caring for small children. Did you catch that? All of God's huge plans begin with the caring for small children. On that day, with those three moms and Moses, God was launching a glorious plan, and it began with caring for small children. Moms are in the people business, and there is no more important business in all of the world than the people business. I don't know what business you're in, doesn't compare with people. Jesus came for people. And moms, what you do is beyond significant. May you feel the smile of God and may dignity flow in your veins as you know you're called to something as important as it gets. I'd like to pray for the moms. God, we give you thanks for the moms that are here and ask 
that you would bless them on this day where we celebrate their faithfulness. God, I pray that you would renew your call to those birth moms and adoptive moms and second moms, that they'd feel that calling in their soul and know that, yes, they can be used. Give them a wise plan and the courage to execute it. God, I pray that they'd feel your smile as they wholeheartedly go about this calling you have on their life. And God, would you make them fruitful? I pray that the younger generation would be richly blessed and your kingdom strategically advanced through this calling of raising up young people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.